seems almost fatuous to discuss whether there is an upside to this terrible um, pandemic and this awful virus, but there may be an indirect uh, upside uh, to this whole thing. And I'm speaking, of course, about the environment. And uh, joining me now is John Gibbons. John, how are you? Good morning, Mario. I'm great, thank you. Oh, great. You've got a nice line there. Are you on Skype? On Skype, yeah. Very good. John, um, I mean, you know what I'm getting at here. Since the the onset of the pandemic, very few people are talking about the climate change um, issue anymore. And it's, it's, it's been moved away from the uh, news agenda. Having said that, the potential upside of the pandemic has meant a, a complete um, cessation in many cases and in many parts of the world of industrial output and activity, which may, of course, be uh, yielding rewards in that regard. Now, is that not true? Yeah, I think so, Mario. Obviously, nobody. This is exactly how you don't want to achieve emissions. I mean, nobody, nobody in the right mind wants a pandemic. Everybody's affected. So I think let's just start by saying that that you know, if this is good news, uh, it's a hell of a way to deliver it. But the reality is, of course, we have seen some significant reductions in in as you say, in industrial output. For example, there's been a ninety percent reduction in flights over the EU, ninety two percent reduction in flights in and out of Ireland, and this is having a very real and very direct effect. So there's no doubt about it. And I think as well that what people are noticing and, and you alluded to it in your introduction is life has quietened down a little bit we're, we're actually beginning to notice things I was looking earlier at some wonderful footage of wild animals wandering into towns and cities there were peacocks on the streets in Spain a young puma was photographed in Santiago Chile a herd of goats in La Ludlo in Wales and a, a herd of Sitka deer in, in, a, in a city in Japan just wandering around it's almost as if you know, all the humans are finally locked up and the natural world comes out to play. And I think it's it's marvellous yeah. because we're we're surrounded by the natural world, Mario, but they're in hiding and they have very good reason to be in hiding because unfortunately it's human activity and human yeah. persecution that's such a terrible challenge for our for our, our, our fellow creatures. Pumas and peacocks on the street, it's just gold for AA Roadwatch. But anyway, give us the facts, uh, John. What kind of yeah. facts are, how are we looking at in terms of the reduction in output? Sure. Okay. Uh, there's a, an organization called the Global, the Global Carbon Project, and their estimate is that by that over the course of 2020, global CO2 emissions will fall by about five percent. Okay, that's as a direct result of the coronavirus impact on industry. Now, that's the biggest one-year fall since the end of the Second World War. Wow. And to compare it, you know, so it's much bigger, for example, than in the 2008 financial crash. This is huge. Now. Of course, five percent is good, but it still leaves ninety-five percent, and this is the problem. And the, and just to be a little bit depressing for a second, Mario, the we were told eighteen months ago by the UN that the world economy needs to reduce its carbon output by seven and a half percent a year every year until there's no more carbon left in the global economy. So even the effect of a coronavirus crisis is only taken us about two-thirds of the way in a single year, and it's required us to actually you know, have this, this, this catastrophe to make it happen. And I think what that underlines is just what a massive challenge decarbonizing is when we're not serious about it. And of course, we haven't been serious about it. And the other problem, as, as you well know, is that it's all very well reducing emissions in a crisis like this. But the rebound effect, which we've seen time and time again, means they'll come back twice as strong. So you get a bounce back that, that basically wipes out all your gains. So 
I suppose the, the key problem really is that we're depending for over 80% of the world's total energy needs involve setting fire to stuff. In other words, burning fossil fuels. Now, this is tragic. We knew 50 years ago, certainly 30 years ago, that if we continue to burn fossil fuels, you know, by the billions of tons, eventually it would lead to a global disaster. Now, unfortunately, we've been so addicted and, and so encouraged to be addicted to cheap fuels and easy access fuels that we've continued down this path. So this really, I guess, remains the, the key challenge. And, and a related one to this, Mario, is that a lot of companies are actually using this uh, crisis. Uh, you know, they say never, never waste a good crisis, but you've got airline companies, you've got fossil fuel companies, you've got energy companies demanding that their governments reduce regulation and give them even bigger tax breaks in order to help them bail out of this. So uh, the airline industry, for example, um, is looking for a $1 trillion bailout. That's $1,000 billion. And yet this is the fastest growing sector for emissions. And also, as, as I'm sure you know, the uh, aviation sector pays little or nothing towards, for example, the environmental cost of the fuels that it, that it, that it burns. So here we are, a situation yet again where the private sector is demanding that we, the taxpayer, bail them out. Now, I mean, some of these businesses will need to be will need to be bailed out. There's no doubt about it. But my my take on this is, if they want our money, well, then we the only bailout has to be a green bailout. Yeah. They have to agree to environmental rules. Otherwise, I mean, there is this thing you hear at Mario. It says we need to get back to normal. Normal is killing us. Normal is killing the natural world. Normal is destroying the shared global atmosphere. Normal is emptying our seas. Now, mm. I, I, for my kids' sake, I do not want to get back to a normal, which is environmental destruction and climate breakdown. That yeah. is not the normal that I want to get back to. So in a sense, Mario, you know, nobody wanted this. I didn't want this. But this, in a sense, is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to hit the reset button. And I've noticed talking to people and, and reading, there seems to be a new awareness of the extraordinarily fragile state of our world, how we're completely at the mercy of nature and how quickly everything we take for granted can unravel. And the lesson, if I can call it that, of coronavirus is we, we're in a much more precarious position than we thought. We thought we're the masters of the world, we can do what we like, and there's no consequences. Now, people say, well, what the heck has coronavirus got to do with what humans have done? It actually has everything to do with it. Coronavirus is what's called a zoonotic disease. It has jumped from wild animals through, probably through domesticated animals, into human. Why? Because we're intruding into the areas where these viruses live and are resident naturally. And it's human incursions. We've seen this with Ebola. We've seen it with SARS. We've seen it with numerous dangerous viruses. And now coronavirus, what we're doing is we're, we're destroying the natural hinterland for these viruses. And we're actually forcing them to jump into human populations. And the problem is we make a very juicy target for, for viruses. We need to step back from the natural world, give the natural world room to grow, to thrive. For example, cutting down rainforests is a classic own goal. It might make some people some money, but it is proven time and time again that is a breeding ground for diseases. It increases incidences of malaria, of West Nile fever, etc. So we need to back off nature. Mm. And I think, as, as we said a little bit earlier, I think it's wonderful to see animals and, you know, to even hear the birds. I mean, there was an article yesterday in the Irish Times that was pointing out that birds do most of their calling to, the, to other birds uh, early in the morning and late in the evening. And they communicate their mating calls and their, and their territorial calls. And that, of course, coincides with the peak traffic, uh, the morning rush hour 
an evening rush hour and birds can't hear one another over the racket. So what we're hearing now, not, not, not only are we getting to hear birdsong, but birds can hear one another. They're actually able to communicate as the din of human activity uh, yeah. eases off. John, one of the things that the pandemic has exposed is how in first world countries even our health systems are pitifully uh, prepared for the onset of a situation like this. The other situation that it's exposed is our economic situation, the uh, just-in-time supply lines that we use all over the world, pitifully something just a quick virus like that. Um, another thing that's exposed is the social and economic inequality, um, that as soon as something like this hits, the poorest in society are the most affected. I'm just wondering, how that will, will that teach us lessons in terms of the glimpse we've been given into the potential fixes for climate change here. So what I'm asking is, has this glimpse that we have been given by this virus, that there is hope if you allow it for the climate to recover, do you think this will give us a leg up in, in the climate change political fight? Well, that that's a complicated question that deserves a complicated answer. The first part, as you said in your introductory remarks, Mario, is that climate as an issue has been knocked off the front pages. When have you last heard of Greta Thunberg in the last three months? You know, all that great campaigning work, the Fridays for Future, all of that has been pushed out of the media cycle, which is tragic. However, there are other things that I think we've become aware of. And, and I'll, let me be local for a second, right? Ireland is, as you know, uh, we've a, we're a big agricultural exporting country and we produce and export huge amounts of principally beef and dairy products. Now, however, we're importing almost 10 billion euros worth of food. And this isn't all exotic food like bananas. We're importing vast amounts of potatoes, carrots, onions, apples, things that grow really well in Ireland, we're importing because we've built this monolithic export-oriented system. And, and you might wonder, by the way, where all this stuff is going. Um, a lot of our milk in the form of milk powder is going directly to China as milk powder and to Saudi Arabia. Now, anybody who thinks that that's a model for agricultural sustainability, I think uh, I would have to disagree. What we should be focusing on, and the reason why the European taxpayer through the cap puts tens of billions of euros a year into supporting our agricultural systems is to make us resilient so that we avoid the, the, the danger of famine and food shortage in Europe. So we need to refocus our food systems towards a resilient one. You touched on it exactly when you said, for example, that the supply lines, as they increase in length, they become more fragile. Ireland, at a minimum, should be able to provide enough food for its own citizens. And right now, if we, for any reason, let's say this catastrophe got a hell of a lot worse, let's say that we lost access, Mario, uh, to the shipping lanes, right? Let's say they just shut down. Could Ireland feed itself? Could our agriculture system feed Irish people, say, for the next 12 months? Could the we? answer is no. no. Not at all. We would have starvation in Ireland. We would be slaughtering our animals, eating them, and after that, we'd be eating grass. Now, that's the system that we've built up, and that's the system that the politicians, the Michael Creeds and so on, have pushed and pushed and pushed. Mostly, by the way, not even at the behest of farmers, but mostly at the behest of agri-industrial giants, the Glanbias and the Ornuas and so on. They're the ones pushing this, this agenda, and I think a lot of the farmers are dragged along behind them. We need, at a minimum, to have an agricultural system capable of feeding the people of Ireland. We're not even close. We're, we're absolutely food insecure on this island. Mm. And as I say, there's only so much milk and steak that you can possibly eat. So that would be one thing, one really important area where I hope, as the dust settles from this and people get their heads up again, they say, look, what's important? Now, 
What's not important in my book is the ability to buy carrots for 49 cents in Aldi. I think that's a shock. I think it's disgraceful and outrageous that high quality food that requires huge amounts of effort to produce is then being sold for half nothing. So we, we, need, we need to protect food producers to make sure they get a fair price and they're not being exploited by supermarkets. And there's nobody better, by the way, than supermarkets for exploiting primary producers. So we need to protect our primary producers, get them a fair price for good food. On that as well, Mario, only 2% of Ireland's land is uh, farmed organically. What that means is 98% of our agricultural system in Ireland requires the application of chemicals. And guess what that means? We have among the least wildlife anywhere in the world. So this idea, you know, the origin green, we're a green country, mm. we're a green exporter, absolutely not. From a wildlife point of view, Ireland is a desert. It is an absolute desert. Now, we can do better. We need food security. We need to give our wildlife space to recover and to regrow. And these are the things that I'd love to see come through. I, I noticed, for example, in the Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil um, election manifesto, they're talking about, we're going to plant 400 million trees. And they judiciously avoid telling us what kind of trees they are. And of course, you know, and I know what they mean is they want to plant um, non-native Sitka spruce, which are basically industrial wood production that have nothing to do with nature, that are of no value to biodiversity. And anyway, they'll be cut down in 10 or 20 years, which means there's zero carbon benefit to Ireland in doing this. So, you know, we need to get past these clever little manoeuvres where they say, oh, we're going to reforest. But of course, it's not genuine. So mm. we kind of got to get past the green slogans and towards a Green New Deal. And, and again, the, the European Union is signing up members at the moment for, for a green recovery from this crisis. And Ireland, I think, kicking and dragging has finally signed up. Now, by the way, that's, that's great. I'm delighted that it has. But we really, really need to live our values. And at the moment, we're really talking out of both sides of our mouth when it comes to the environment. And, and you and I have spoken about this, uh, Mario, many times. But, you know, all bets are off if we get this thing wrong in the environment. And we're getting this thing very, very wrong. So that's why I say, let's have a reboot. Let's start again. But for goodness sakes, let's learn the lessons and let's build a better world, a world fit for our kids. Mm. Um, just a smaller issue. What about travel? You know, the, the the recent work practices have changed in the sense that we're we're teleconferencing at home and Zoom and all this and Skype and like you are now. Um, do you think that will lead to a reduction in traveling um, people traveling to meetings across the world? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was looking at some of the data on this in 1970, which isn't that long ago. It's the year I went to first went to primary school. In 1970, there was about 500 million uh, f uh, annual passengers, you know, in the world. Uh, last year, it was four and a half billion. So we increased flying in 50 years ninefold. Now, that's just bananas. And you might say, well, where's, where's everybody going? And one of the reasons why we've, we've you know, taken this incredibly valuable resource called flying and abused it is, of course, because it's so ridiculously cheap. It's often been pointed out it can be cheaper to fly from Dublin to, to Malaga than to get the train from Dublin to Cork. And the miracle of cheap flight, of course, is that we haven't taxed it. We haven't taxed tickets. We haven't taxed aviation fuel. So we've basically let this sector run completely out of control. So I think we could do globally with only a fraction of the amount of flying that we have now. And your other question in relation to teleconferencing and working from home, I agree. And I think there's a, another important part of that, Mario. Companies, ac uh, academic institutions, universities, big businesses, they're forever sending people all over the world to conferences, to network and all this stuff. Now, a lot of that is just absolute vanity projects yeah. people trotting here and trotting there I think we could probably reduce that by 90% and not be affected now I run a business as well so I've been myself and my colleagues have been working away from home as as you and your colleagues and, and so many other people have and I have to say we're touch wood 
Fair enough. We're, we're lucky. We're, yeah, we're, we're tipping away. We're managing. We're in a sector that, that has continued to, to operate. So we're very fortunate in that. And we found that we're able to manage. And, you know, is that a lesson for the future? Are we going to, like, is, am I, as a company owner, going to, you know, look more at teleworking and so on? Absolutely, of course. And if, if people come to me and say, look, I would actually like to do this maybe two or three days a week, we now know it can work. And I okay. think this will be seen all over the place. And hopefully the, the accumulation of that, Mario, is maybe we'll even have a bit of space back on our, on our roads again. Brilliant. John Gibbons, thank you very much for joining me this morning.